0: This is Jewish Board Talk with Cherie Zephard, only on 101.9 High fm
1: When Rabbi Charlie Citron Walker recounted the terror attack he and his congregants faced in Texas last Saturday as, quote, terrifying and traumatic, it was exactly what terrorism aims to do. I'm pleased to have as my guest now terrorism and counterterrorism expert Professor Hussain Solomon. Professor Solomon is Senior Professor and Head of Department of Political Science at the University of the Free State. He has authored numerous books and papers on the topic. His most recent book, written with Doctors Glenn Siegel and Sergei Kostelianet, is entitled Terrorism in Africa, New Trends and Frontiers. It was launched this week. Professor Solomon, welcome and thank you for joining me.
0: Well, thanks for having me.
1: Professor, what happened in Texas shows you that terrorism is alive and well throughout the world. Can you explain a little bit of the motives behind such acts?
0: There's a lot of things unclear, specifically regarding Texas. Was it mental health? Was it political? But what is very clear is, according to him, that's uh, Malik Faisal Akram, uh, had done this because of uh, basically demanding the release of Afia Siddiqui. Uh, She's a Pakistani neuroscientist uh, who's currently serving an 86-year prison sentence, also in Fort Worth, Texas, over attempts to kill U.S. soldiers in Afghanistan. So you have a situation whereby you have a British national of Pakistani descent demanding the release of, of someone who had undertook to kill U.S. soldiers in Afghanistan, and he chose to do it in Texas, in the USA. And if anything, that kind of proves the issue of globalization, that we are living in a globalized world and insecurity anywhere is a threat to security everywhere. And to be honest with you, um, I mean, this isn't South Africa, right? I I, I just couldn't understand how he was let into America after being on the subject of interest list there was only a four-week investigation into him, which suggests that maybe the British security services are overstretched. He has a criminal record. He has a um, he has a problem of mental illness. And then, to make matters worse, as soon as he lands at JFK, he can purchase weapons. You know, there's just so much in that situation which is wrong.
1: Professor, you talk about the globalization of terrorism, and, and that you say is a perfect example of it. What is counterterrorism looking like at a global level? Is there cooperation?
0: Well, ostensibly, there is cooperation. You have bilateral agreements. You have sub-regional agreements, you know, like, for example, SADC, ECOWAS, uh, and so forth. Then you have the AU, you have the EU, and then, of of course, right at the top of it, you have the United Nations. The United Nations is not sovereign. The United Nations doesn't have the power to do a lot of things, and it is ultimately um, a club of member states. And some of these member states cooperate very nicely with the UN authorities and others do not. Some share intelligence and others say, no, it's too sensitive. I will not. And then there's the troubling question of what you do with member states who are state sponsors of terror, like Iran. (laughs) What do you do there? So unfortunately, you know, the UN isn't working. International cooperation isn't working, as we see in terms of just this particular case. You know, I think that the Americans and the British should have been collaborating you know um, much more to have prevented something like this i know that when i apply for a visa f- uh, to the us you know i'm given until misery and when i arrive there i'm i'm uh, there's a very euphemistic uh, terminology for being interrogated and it's called secondary screening and i've been through that several times and i just find this absolutely shocking in this case
1: Absolutely agree with you. If, um, global counterterrorism is not as coordinated and working as well together as it should, what about terrorism itself? Is it mainly, cause I know you've just come out with your book on, on, on Africa. Is it coordinated or is it just little bands of people who unite every now and then for specific purposes?
0: Well, I think it's a combination of both. I think that on the African continent, you have localized groupings, uh, formed around local grievances. And they mobilize, and not always for religious reasons, sometimes for economic reasons, sometimes for reasons of ethnocentric nationalism. Think of the Tuaregs in Mali, you know, uh, uh, wanting their own independent state called Azawad, or for that matter, closer to home, look at Cabo Delgado, right? The most impoverished region in Mozambique, now facing this insurrection. So, but what happens is, over time, uh, these local groups get support from your, uh, and become franchises of your Islamic State and your Al-Qaeda. And then you see more sophisticated kinds of attacks. Okay. So when Boko Haram first started, you know, they would fire poison arrows from those of motorcycles, right? Now you see more Mumbai style attacks. Now you see the use of IEDs. Now you see the use of uh, shape charge PETN explosives and so on and so forth. And part of the reason is that the international franchise, the mother body, actually provides that expertise. So... No, initially it's very localized, but increasingly there is greater coordination. What is problematic on the African continent is that the African security architecture is just not working. So, for example, in the case of uh, Mozambique, SADC is supposed to play a key role. But what you see, actually Rwanda, uh, which is not part of SADC, there. and, of course, the Mozambican government signs an agreement with Rwanda, you know. Uh, if you take al-Shabaab in Somalia, it's supposed to be uh, um, uh, um, within the area of IGAD, right? But it's not IGAD, okay? It's Amisong, which has extra regional forces, including Nigerians and Sierra Leoneans and so on. Similarly, if you take the Sahel region, uh, it's supposed to be within the rubric of Uh, ECOWAS. It's not. It's the Sahel G5 and its various international players, most notably the French.
1: You talk about, for example, closer to home, Rwanda getting involved in Mozambique. Are we grateful to Rwanda for stepping up? Is Rwanda acting out of its own self-interest? Is it acting in the interests of the region? What is the motivating force?
0: Let's just say this, that SADC was pretty slow in terms of getting off the starting block. And that works out with every other crisis, right? Whether it's Zimbabwe, Swaziland, Lesotho, you name it. I think that Paul Kagame, the president of Rwanda, has very um, outsized ambitions for such a tiny country and yes it seems to be effective and so forth but you know the problem you know and you can ask the americans after sending 140,000 troops to afghanistan and you can perhaps warn president Sogamaposa about not declaring victory over the insurgents in cabo delgado as he recently did because after removing them from a particular area if you look at the al-Shabaab experience and just move on to another area and you are declaring victory the whole idea is staying power staying there and then the other thing is what is missing in terms of the whole rwandan mozambican experience is the issue of governance i mean felimo is absolutely lousy at providing governance so having achieved negative security in a particular area in terms of the absence of violence you now need to provide public goods, right? But well, what you need to govern, you need to ensure that the clinics are there. You need to ensure that there's jobs there. Now you have all of this gas in Cabo Delgado and so on. And people very much like in terms of Nigeria, right, in terms of the delta there, are saying, hey, you know, there's all of this gas, there's all of this energy resources. What about something for us? It is in our area after all, right? And unless you can uh, create an inclusive society in terms of sharing benefits and not being so corrupt, this insurgency is going to continue for some years. I'm sorry to be negative.
1: You, together with your colleagues, and uh, Dr. Glenn Siegel is a guest on the show, um, often and have edited this book about terrorism. And what do you think the best way to counter terrorism in, in Africa is?
0: When you look at the available literature on the subject, You obviously have to confront terrorists with physical force as well, because one of the first uh, criteria of a state is that it has the coercive monopoly over force, over violence. But the question is what happens afterwards, right? Some people feel ethnically excluded. OK, they feel alienated from the state. They feel marginalized. And that has been the history of the post-colonial African state. So you need to, how do you build resilience? How do you build cohesion? By giving people a stake economically and politically in that society. The issue of governance, you know, in this book that we did with the African Institute of the Russian Academy of Sciences, as well as Haifa University, you know, we looked at different regions, you know, Southern Africa, uh, West Africa, East Africa. But we also looked at issues, right? So, for example, there's a section here about online terrorism and about how terror groups message and how successful that message is in terms of, of you know, recruiting. Now, you can counter-message. But what if the terrorist message is actually grounded in truths? It's manipulated. Yes, it's exaggerated and so on. But you don't have to tell someone in Cabo Delgado, you know, or Chad, you know, or Niger or Somalia, you are poor and you are completely excluded from the political process, and you are economically impoverished because these people are stealing from you. It has resonance, which undermines resilience, undermines social cohesion. How do you counter-message that? For years, I've been involved, for example, in saying, no, this is not Islam, right, that you, you are preaching and so forth. But in relation to a government uh, which is rapacious and predatory and oppressive. That message will have resonance, right?
1: Basically, you're saying the start is not necessarily governments fighting terrorism, but governments looking to secure the economic and social uh, strength of their own citizens.
0: That is a medium to long-term strategy. In the short term, you'll have to fight terror groups. Um, militarily. The South African military, uh, uh, or indeed any of the militaries, the African militaries, they've been proved inept in the fight. Uh, uh, Largely because their military doctrine is wrong. The kind of weapon systems is wrong. The kind of training is wrong. I mean, if you take the Sahel, America, Britain, uh, Germany, the Netherlands, Ireland, France, obviously, have been training African militaries for decades, right? And they actually lose to a ragtag militia. Why is that? Because they're training them on the basis of how their military is, is structured. These militaries should stress flexibility, movement, uh, mobility, quick communications, firepower, the need for trackers, basically guerrilla warfare, right? We should go and learn the lessons of fighting the Mau Mau in Kenya and the British counterinsurgency operation in Malaysia and so on.
1: Professor, my last question to you. Do you think then that fighting terrorism should not be government driven, but well trained, um, specific international armies or whatever you want to call them that should be, the, the, whose job it is to fight terrorism. Would that be more effective?
0: Look, there's a, a number of, uh, different, um companies already operating on the African continent. Not always very effectively, if I can think of the Russian v- uh, Wagner group, okay, uh, in terms of what happened to them in Mozambique. You know, they were beheaded. Uh, numbers of them were beheaded there. Or what happened to them in, in terms of Libya. Look, ideally, I would love Africans to be involved. But part of the problem is is the African military, you know, um, and what you saw in South Africa in July with the riots was local people mobilizing to protect the malls and so on. What I'm seeing across the African continent, interestingly enough, is more and more local people organizing to fight al-Shabaab, to fight uh, uh, Boko Haram, to fight Jama'at al-Musra, al-Qaeda in the Islamic Maghreb, Islamic State in the Greater Sahel. Local communities are doing this. The long-term prognosis for the African state is that it's dying. It was a construct of colonial powers, you know, Bismarck and the Berlin Conference in the 19th century and so on. And it's losing its appeal. It cannot provide the basics to its people. And security is a basic. And on the basis of that, what you're seeing is that will have negative consequences for subregional structures like SADC, ECOWAS, IGAG, and, and so on. But it will also have negative consequences for the African Union as these member states disintegrate. You know, back in the 1990s, there was this notion of pivotal states, right? Nigeria, Egypt, Kenya, Ethiopia, South Africa, basically playing a key role in terms of stabilizing their respective regions. What is very interesting with hindsight in terms of 2022 is that those pivotal states are the problem. And it's spilling over into neighboring states. So Nigeria can't deal with Boko Haram. Now it's become a regional problem.
1: Wow, a lot to digest. Um, your book is online. Uh, it is called Terrorism in Africa, New Trends and Frontiers was launched this week. It is online. If anybody would like to learn more, there's. Uh, I know that this is a very broad topic and there's a lot to digest. How do people access your book, Professor?
0: Well, uh, it's freely accessible from the um from the Russian Academy of uh, of, of sciences, from the Africa Institute, and it's free to download. Uh, um and should you want hard copies, you can actually order it from them. And I should maybe use this opportunity to also say that I just uh did another book called Directions in International Terrorism, which came up with Palgrave Macmillan and also has people like Glenn Siegel and Moshe Tardman from Haifa University. For those of your listeners who don't know, we have an MOU with Haifa University and these are all the fruits and products of that collaboration.
1: Professor, well done, congratulations and look forward to having you again and thank you so much for your insight.
0: Thank you very much.
1: That was Professor Hussein Solomon, a head of department of political science at the University of the Priesthood.